Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us from Nashville, Tennessee, is Dr. Jay Wellens. He's a professor in the departments of neurological surgery, pediatrics, plastic care, radiology, and radiological sciences at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, which is in the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He also holds the Cal Turner Jr. Chair there and is Chief of the Division of Pediatric Neurosurgery and is the Medical Director for the Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids, and he co-founded that. He's also written several op-eds for the New York Times, and most recently, he wrote and published All That Moves Us, Life Lessons from a Pediatric Neurosurgeon. Uh, That book is currently available, so as I mentioned, he's coming to us from Nashville, Tennessee, and I could not be more excited to interview him. So, uh, Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mike. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, we um, the show is called Coffin Talk, as you know, and it's all about exploring life and death. But, um, you know, we, we're really into consciousness and the brain and, and that part of it, too. So I'm really excited to ask you questions about neuroscience and as well as your philosophy and opinions. Uh, but let's start with like just a little bit of uh, background. Uh, where did you grow up and uh, what led you to medical school? Oh, gosh. Well, I grew up in a small town in South Mississippi called Columbia, Mississippi. It's uh, kind of about 6,000, and uh, its uh, main claim to fame is the home of Walter Payton, who was a big uh, football player for the Chicago Bears back in the day. Um, And, uh, you know, from there, I made my way through college there in Mississippi and then medical school and then to Duke uh, for my residency. And then after my residency, I went to University of Alabama, Birmingham for – my one-year fellowship, and then I stayed on for another, for a total of 10 years where I was on faculty there. And then in 2012, I came to Vanderbilt uh, to help grow the program, the pediatric neurosurgery program here, and uh, have been here for uh, going on 10 years now. So it's been a a, a, a tour day southeast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was a very succinct recap. Um, I'm sure you've been told this many times, but for someone who grew up in Mississippi and has lived in Alabama, North Carolina, and Tennessee, you have a surprisingly lack of a Southern drawl and accent. Is that uh, just me or? Well, I think, you know, um, you can, it's, it's, it's on a modulator. You can turn it up and turn it, <laughs> turn it down as you need it. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Um, that's cool though. And, um, uh, just real quick before we get into everything we're going to get into, uh, just for the clarification of myself and our audience, when we say pediatrics, that does mean like zero to 17 years. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's really, um, you know, anybody under the age of 18. Um, and uh, over the last 10 years, that's not only included, you know, premature infants, but it's also included um, fetal surgery as well. Um, that's been a, a part of the journey here at Vanderbilt which has certainly been um, one full of wonder and interest for me personally. It's cool. And as, as a young person, before you got into medical school, were your aspirations to perform surgery, to just be a doctor, to help out, to do research? Like, where were you kind of headed when you were younger? Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, as a long-haired Birkenstock-wearing, um, you know, college student, I uh, was I had, my, had, my, had it divided up into three basic states of man. You know, this is just going to harken back to being in college, right? Um, but uh, the physical, kind of the mental slash educational, and then the spiritual. And I thought that, you know, a job that catered to one of those basic states of man would be what I wanted to do. So whether it was being a physician or being a teacher or being a priest. And, um, and so, you know, I toyed with 
you know, I was an English major. That was an important part of my life then uh, and uh, still is, always has been. Um, I had some outstanding professors. I had creative writing classes from Barry Hanna and Ellen Douglas to just phenomenal, you know, Southern uh, writers who were very instrumental in my early days of, of writing or trying to write, I should say. Um, but then uh, I really was drawn to medicine, A, because, you know, again, it catered to a basic state of man, but also, you know, my father um, had wanted to be a doctor. He um, kind of, after his college years, he went back and took pre-med classes, actually got into medical school. Uh, but by that time, had, you know, a wife and two kids and, and was unable to fund it. And I've seen the letters as I cleaned out my family home of 50 years that uh, my mom had fastidiously kept. And, you know, so it really made it real for me to understand, you know, why that was something that he always dropped in a sentence. Or I used to he used to say he would come into my bedroom at night and whisper it into my ear when I was asleep, you know. But, but it was important for me to kind of forge my own way. And so I ultimately decided to kind of, at the time, merge the two. I thought that I would go into family medicine, um, you know, be a primary care physician in a community similar to one in Columbia, where, you know, we you took care of people of all types and took care of problems of all types. And you rounded in the nursing homes and you delivered the occasional baby and you were really a, a part of that community. And I thought along the way, maybe I would learn about the human condition. Uh, and then, you know, I think I was able to assuage my, um, you know, my literary self or my writer self by saying, I think one day maybe that'll be applicable to what I'm trying to understand or searching for. And then obviously that changed when I got into medical school. Um, uh, and that a lot of it had to do with, you know, the beauty of the anatomy of the nervous system, you know, the brain and the spinal cord and the brachial plexus and the peripheral nerves, I felt very called to go into that. Um, and so that's kind of how I navigated my way into neurosurgery, all the way from sitting in uh, a class with Barry Hanna when I was a junior in college. That's incredible. And that's really cool. And as someone who's a writer, it's always cool to hear the way it all just kind of turns out. I might pen the greatest novel ever written in like the next 10 years, and it still wouldn't, to me, be as important as helping children. And actually, speaking of children, you do have a family. Uh, how many kids do you have? We have uh, my wife and I have two kids. We have a 17-year-old a, um, named Jack and a 13, almost 14-year-old, you know, going on 22-year-old uh, girl named Fair, F-A-I-R. It's uh, my wife's uh, maiden name. And so, you know, we're, we're in the thick of it. We're, uh, you know, she's got a um, volleyball game later today that I'm going to do my best to, to make it to because uh, that's something I've found to be really important as I've gotten older. Uh, you know, because these days won't be with us forever. Yeah, yeah. Family is, is just so important. And and the reason I asked about your children specifically, as opposed to your wife, was just that, did that affect at any point in your career? Did it make it harder or easier to work on, like, let's say a fetus or a very young child who has, like, a major problem and needs a surgery? Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot -P com. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've hit on it there, Mike. I mean, it's it's impossible, you know, to spend the majority of the day taking out a brain tumor in a five-year-old girl and then go home at night and kiss your own five-year-old girl, you know, goodnight. It's impossible to not feel connected 
to that family in some way. And um, so, you know, uh, the first part of my career, I did not have kids. Um, but I think once you have kids, it, it does it does have an impact on you. And where you can make fun of yourself impact is is in the importance of like, you become Captain Car Seat, you know, and Mr. Bike Helmet, you know, I mean, like, the, the, you know, you kind of realize there's so little in this life that you can really control. And uh, so the things that you believe that you can control, like, like those things, you know, you really focus in on and hone in on, you know, so yeah, I would strap my kids into car seats, you know, like Gunter strapping <laughs> the Apollo astronauts in before takeoff, you know, I mean, you know, dad, I can't breathe, you know, good. All right. You're in there tight enough, you know? Um, but I think that that, you know, that's, that's one part of it. You know, the other part of it is you really, now that they're older, you really have to tamp down some of the anxiety that can be from, uh, you know, driving a car or going to see their friends or, you know, driving to see a friend in another town. I mean, this is, you know, as your child ages, they're becoming more independent and you're actually having to become, you know, kind of um, independent in a way as well, because you've become a, you've almost become dependent on the role of being their parent. I mean, I I've very much enjoyed being their parent. I, I was the, you know, whenever I could, I was the dad that, and like many dads are, you know, got on the ground and played with Legos or, you know, played with Thomas the Tank Engine, and you know, and then you leave all that behind. And, you know, you mountain bike with your kids and then you, you know, you see them gradually continue to grow. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, they're they're off to college. You know, there's a great Nashville author, uh, Mary Laura Philpot, who actually writes about this in her book, Bomb Shelter. Uh, it's such a great book, but it's it's basically what it's like to see your children, you know, go to college when your life has been very much about them, you know, your your home life. So, um, so anyway, I mean, it definitely has an impact on me and, you know, it just, it takes a degree of trust and understanding that there's only so much control that you have in how things occur. That's awesome. Um, I have to warn you because you are both profound and because your topics of interest interest me greatly, I am building a long list of questions to ask you. And it's also interesting because you're, you're very good at answering questions. I'm just going <laughs> to warn you that I'm building a list. My next two questions, they were going to be separate, but I think for the essence of time, I'll ask them together because you're sharp and I think you'll be able to see where I'm going with this. As far as neuroscience is concerned, I volunteered in hospice for many years and I saw a lot of dementia. And I, I am a big believer that alcohol is a huge part of our dementia problem in the US and the world. I'm curious, in adolescence, do you think alcohol and drug use is going to cause like future dementia or is it only doing brain damage at the time? Well, that's a that's a great question, particularly considering yesterday, I think, was National Alzheimer's Day. You know, I think it's a very apropos question. I mean, there's no doubt that amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles can occur from having had a head injury, from um, not taking care of yourself over the course of your life, and also just genetically being predispositioned to it. You know, there's a, a lipo, apolipoprotein, um, you know, that uh, is created in the body, E3 and E4. And you can be a person that has E3 and have less of a chance of having neurologic disease, or you could be an E4 and you have a higher chance. And that's been proven not just in outcomes with strokes, but in dementia pugilistica, which is from boxing or for patients that are more likely to have Alzheimer's. And, you know, there's just no way to control how you're born. 
Now, you know, potentially with gene therapy, you know, could something like that be modifiable? I mean, it's been worked on. In fact, that was something that I worked on many years ago at Duke. So that's you know almost 23 years ago. So it's it's not anything new. It's just the idea of being able to somehow mitigate the negative byproduct of how you're born. I think that's really one of the holy grails. But sure, you know, I can't quote literature that talks about alcoholism and drug use as being part of what leads to dementia later on in life. But I do know that we're not fully myelinated until, you know, our early 20s, you know, maybe at 18, 19, and 20, our brains are still developing. And so that's as a lot of the reason why you see in that age group between 18 and 22, particularly in males, the highest mortality risk is from, you know, motor vehicle accidents and gunshot wounds. So that's a pretty eye-opening. You think about how we all mature in this life. So, you know, it's a roundabout way to answer it. You know, I can't imagine that it's not, but I don't, I don't know the data specifically to know if there's a one-on-one correspondence. I do know that alcoholism can lead to hypertension and hypertension can lead to what's called multi-infarct dementia, which is the form of dementia that's associated with untreated high blood pressure. They talk about the difference between causality and association. And, you know, causality is where you can for sure say that A leads to B. And association is that it's associated with it, but you, there may be some unidentified reasons or variables in there that are actually causing A to lead to B. And so right now, I think we can say there's an association. I don't know if we can say there's there's causation, but I can say causation highly suspect, comma, you know. Great answer. Wow. And again, only because your time is precious and I want to move on, I'm going to jump another topic. But again, thank you so much. These are answers are just perfect. The main point of the show is to ask people what they think happens when you die. So since we just breached the subject of death for the second time, and since we talked about causality versus association, I'm curious what you think happens when someone dies and what's going to happen to you when you die and how much associative versus causal evidence you have for your answer. That's a terrific question. And I was expecting something like this. And, (laughs) um, you know, I... I, I do have a theological construct. It's been a part of who I am for as long as I can remember. You know, I think there's a there's different theological constructs that one can have that can be meaningful. Um, you know, uh, I'm I've been Episcopalian. You know, what's called a cradle Episcopalian. That's the small church of 15 people that I was raised in in my small hometown. I like that flavor of Christianity. It tends to be non-judgmental and open-minded and you know, there's kind of the concept of the via media, the, the middle way that a lot of people that are in the Episcopalian denomination kind of subscribe to, which is, you know, oftentimes there's a place that we can come together to have an understanding with one another. And so on that foundation, uh, you know, I don't think that there are streets lined with gold and that, um, you know, our relatives are going to be there with wings on their backs. But I do think that there is uh, some type of Um, dimension that exists that we are our soul or our spirit or our life essence moves to after we die. And, you know, I think people talk about when they witness a death, less so in a hospital, more so unless it's a loved one, less so in the midst of a code event. I mean, but more so if you're, I sat with my mom during a vigil when she was, when she was dying And there's this concept of the air being thin at that time, you know, when when somebody is getting close to death, you know, when they're about to move to 
to a different plane, move to a different place. And that is a very real phenomenon that I felt. And so for me, my mom, who had this incredibly important role for uh, this foundation of spirituality during my life, uh, in her death, even um, contributed or affirmed it up even more for me, which I think is kind of a remarkable last effort by one's parent, uh, you know, to do such an um, important thing. So I, you know, I know that I could go full on science and say, uh, you know, we are a series of neurochemical, uh, you know, of, uh, transmissions in the brain. And once the last acetylcholine jumps across the dendritic divide and there's no longer any, you know, any neurotransmitters flowing, then that's it. It's like a machine and there's no power. But, um, but there's just so many examples of, um, of where I think that there's a, a deeper grace and a place that we move to that we can only catch glimpses of during life. And at the end of the day, you know, it is about faith, right? I mean, that's what, that's what, you know, Kierkegaard talks about, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, it's a leap of faith. And, you know, a lot of people will, in science will denigrate religion and a lot of people in religion will, well, some people in religion will denigrate science, but I actually am really grateful for, for science's role because to some extent, it helps us peel away the layers of things that can be explained so that we can get closer to the things that we really can't explain by, you know, physics and chemistry and biology. You know, the example I like to think about is how, you know, hundreds of years ago, people would look up at the stars and it was the it was called the firmament of the heavens. And it was thought to be a large, giant piece of velvet in which holes were poked in it. And it was reflecting heaven on the other side. And it was letting little bits of heaven come through those poked holes. And that was the common thought of what, of what the stars and the sky were. Well, now we know that it's actually much bigger than that. And it actually puts us kind of in our place in the universe. And that's really a gift because it helps theology move to a different understanding. Okay, well, where, where really is the wonder? I mean, there's wonder there. Don't get me wrong. But, but where is the place where we can't fill in wonder with an explanation? Because that's the place that we then have to have faith about. Wow. I mean, that's just uh, incredible. I, um, I mean, quoting Kierkegaard, who I love, and that I've always found the intersection of philosophy, religion, and science to be so incredible. And I, I was very lucky as a fellow Birkenstock freshman in college, I took a neuroscience course at the same time as I took a history of the philosophy of science course. And for me, they'll always be embedded. So interviewing you is like going back to my freshman year of college to my favorite two courses. Um, and you're such an expert. So kind of on the same line, I'm a, I'm pretty obsessed with near-death experiences. Have you witnessed any with any of your patients? I've certainly seen people very ill. You know, I've seen, you know, people comatose, people with, you know, minimal brainstem function where, we felt like the inevitable would happen and they would go on to herniate, which is where the brain swells so much that it basically forces itself through the hole in the bottom where the spinal cord resides and and it and basically a stroke occurs and the brain no longer works because of that herniation syndrome. But um, I, I have to be honest, Mike, I can't like I I haven't had a situation where a, a child has told me you know, later on in clinic that, you know, I felt like that I was dead and then I was alive. 
and actually, uh, kind of on that same line, um, what is the most mystical, my word, experience you've ever witnessed or had yourself? Like, what is like one of those moments that, as you said, science can discriminate and get rid of a lot of mysteries, but it can't get rid of some? Yeah, well, I think for me, you know, it's this, uh, I kind of mentioned, you know, that I was with my mom. Yeah, I was going to ask if that was it. Yeah, during a vigil. Yeah, when she was, you know, finally passing away from recurrent lymphoma. And, you know, I remember, um, you know, I was at the time I was the program director for the residency program. I was in the middle of interviewing residents to, um, you know, to come to our program here. And I'm in charge of the whole day. And lo and behold, you know, I get a phone call from my wife, which I let it go to voicemail, but then another one and then another one and then a text. And then I realized that, you know, something's happened. And so I picked up the phone and basically just had to leave the day and, and get on an airplane and flew into New Orleans and met my sister and who was flying in from New York. And we drove, you know, along the, the bayou until we got into Mississippi and up to Hattiesburg, where she was um in the hospital where she had um, kind of had an acute decline event. And uh, and basically, I remember thinking, you know, here was this woman who'd lived 80 plus years. She's had this remarkable, meaningful life, full of spirituality, working then and outside of the Episcopal Church on behalf of children. And, um, you know, her medical situation was such that, you know, we could make a decision to do more and more tests and try to kind of flog the situation until maybe we could eke out a few more weeks. But I remember kind of this feeling um, where I was trying to figure out what to do as the sun. And I looked down, uh, I was looking down and there on the table was the book of common prayer, which is the Episcopal book that has our services and our prayers uh, in it that have, you know, kind of timeless and some of the same prayers and sayings that we had said, you know, growing up um, with, as a little boy and as a teenager. And I just remember this psychic kind of psychological shift within me from being a neurosurgeon, you know, uh, to really saying, you know, it's, it's time to, it's time to move this really to more of a spiritual place. And then moving to this place where I think faith just kind of takes over, rules the day. And um, it was just a remarkable experience for me. So I would say that's a that's certainly one of them. I mean, there have been some other remarkable experiences, but I think that's the one that, that I'll hold closest. No, that's a great answer. And uh, one question just as a really quick yes or no, because I think we handled most of it. But in addition to my question about drugs and alcohol with like adolescents and, and I mean, I guess children. There's a big scandal with the NFL and CTE, um, brain, you know, concussions, but also with FIFA and soccer. And so I'm just curious, would you advise modern parents not to let their children play both soccer and and football? Or do you think this is overblown? Well, so that's a great question. You know, I actually, I've been on both sides of this fence. Um, And, uh, you know, what I mean is that uh, I've, I've been the I've been the person that says minimize exposure and I've been the person, you know, on the sidelines at an NFL football game, helping to manage concussion. I mean, it, it does I have to say it does. It sounds like a train wreck, you know, every single play, there's just so there's a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, loud sounds and violence sounding, you know, when you're down there, but, but I also know that sports are really important 
uh, you know, I think the obesity epidemic is way more significant than any kind of theoretical injury that we can see that occurs with youth sports. There's there's always the random chance. I mean, I've I've I mean, I know you know, probably every pediatric neurosurgeon has taken care of some child that's had a terrible cervical spine injury, you know, playing football. And so, you know, I admire um, Alan Sills, you know, on full disclosure, I know him. He's the chief medical officer of the NFL. I've seen what he's been able to do um, by, you know, to not only do a better job of making concussion a real entity, but also being able to diagnose it more and then also being able um, to reduce it. And the use of the guardian caps during practices, for example, the change in where the kickoffs occur, because statistically that's the highest place where injuries, concussion and cervical spine injuries can occur because of people can get a long running start and so forth. So I think, you know, sports are important. They're important for health. They're important for psychological health, you know. And so I would tend to, you know, I would tend to say that it's more important to to play a sport and wear the gear and be responsible. And if, if the coaches are doing one of those things, Oklahoma drills, you know, where two kids just jump off the line and hit each other with three steps. You know, that's probably a situation you don't want to put your kid in. And I know that I can keep talking, but, you know, CTE is a real issue. And, you know, having the NFL players union understand that it's a real issue and want to try to mitigate it and reduce its effect on on the players, I think that's an important partner for the NFL to have. So, um, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if these, all these things that are being done are able to really reduce it. But that's the thing. It just takes time. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm lucky so far because my son has no interest in playing football and my daughter is too young to even ask, but uh, I am a big fan of watching it. And it's, it's hard, you know, it gets harder every year to watch it. But what you mentioned, those two things, the players getting more rights and, you know, and the changes in the kickoffs and stuff, they really did make a difference for me as a fan. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with autonomous vehicles for the purpose of eliminating car accidents, which, again, is like a huge cause of brain damage, as you've already mentioned. Um, I've been hit in my car four times by other people. I was in a wheelchair at one point. Uh, I've just had a really bad... Yeah, and it's not my fault in any of them. And so I'm kind of done with other people driving and texting and looking down do you think that even though we all love to drive our cars and i I love to drive my car do you think we'd be better off societally if they were safer to just get rid of it all yeah i mean i I do think that i I do think that it would be ideal if we moved to a, a place where cars were autonomous or even better you know linked in some larger broader neural network that allowed the cars to work with one another because i think that would be the most ideal now there are a lot of good things about our country there's a lot of good things about what it took to to make our country i do think that independence has a lot of good qualities but i i also fear that it may be what keeps us from ultimately adopting a situation where we rely on somebody else to drive our car it's really cool to watch science fiction shows or shows about the future where people just hop in an Amazon car or a Google car or a whatever car, and they just have a conversation while the car gets them there. I just think that we're going to have to get over um, this self-determinism that is so inherent in our society. And probably it'll have to be where we look over and see 
you know, a country that's not the United States that's done it, that's the, and the benefit perhaps is a reduction of uh, death, you know, a reduction of, you know, a reliance on fossil fuels, whatever it is. Um, you know, I think that we'll probably have to see it and then have a real reason to move, at least in the current environment of, uh, of where we are in the, in the country. Yeah, no, I, and I'm glad you said it the way you did. And I do think the United Kingdom will do it before we do, and we'll see their evidence. So I've, I, I track this pretty closely. Like I said, it's just been hard. I'm sure a lot of your patients uh, come from car accidents. What's like a really nice, positive story from your career that you'd like to tell people about, like saving a kid's life or something like that? Well, you know, I'd say it's unfortunate. I am, I am fortunate to have 20 years plus training in, in doing this work. And so that allows you to have a lot of impact on people's lives, you know, over the course of our career. I would say the story that I think uh, is one that had an effect on me for the majority of my career is one in which I was in my first year of practice. Uh, I was on call for the weekend. I was down in Birmingham and it was on a Saturday morning. I just finished rounding with the resident. I sat at my desk and um, it was just pouring out, pouring rain outside. And I got a page from an outside emergency room and I answered and it was an ER doc who had a, a nine-year-old who had been in a car accident and it had taken them a while to, to get her out. And she had a what's called a subdural hematoma that was pushing on her brain and causing her to have her pupil dilate and not be able to move one side. And she was what's called herniating, which means she was you know probably going to die in the next hour or two if she wasn't didn't get to surgery. And I said, well, why not? Yeah, of course I'll accept her. Why don't you have her in the helicopter already? And he said, well, the copters aren't, the helicopters aren't flying. The medical helicopters aren't flying. And we're nine minutes from you by ground, you know, which is then is too long. And I remember looking at my desk where I had a picture of my dad in his military flight suit because he was a pilot in the Air National Guard. And I started thinking about this, the, the, there was a Blackhawk wing that was down near where this ER doc was calling from. I said, I said, do you, can you call the army base nearby and see about the Blackhawks? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's actually, I'll do that right now. And so he just hung up. And literally about um, 25 minutes later, I'm looking at my coffee cup on my desk, and it starts to ripple like in Jurassic Park, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then the plate window, the glass window that overlooks the front of the hospital started thunk, 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 thunk. And then my whole office was reverberating with the sound of the propeller and it was overwhelming my own heartbeat. And I looked outside to see the rain and the wash all straight down, pushing down on the trucks. A big trash can was flying down the street. And I looked up and there was a Blackhawk hovering over the children's hospital with that little girl in it. And I, and I ran down to the emergency room and they were moving her to the to the ER bed and there were two of the of the flight medics were there in their fatigues just drenched you know in their flight suit just water dripping with every step and one of them saw me and the younger one and the nurse said hey dr wellens your patient's here and i guess he'd been told to deliver the patient to me and he saluted you know and i said well at ease soldier you know we need to be saluting you because you've saved this girl's life and so you know ultimately we got her to the operating room we we did what we needed to do. We took out our blood clot. We got her all closed up and we watched in the recovery in the, in the ICU as she kind of slowly woke up and she slowly started to follow commands. And then, you know, she was still weak on one side, but she got better over the next few days and then went to rehab and 
she physical and occupational therapy rehab and she continued to get better and you know i would see her in clinic and she was walking and she was moving both sides well and she was starting to go back to school and then i would get information from her parents about how she was made the honor roll and then was the school mascot and then had gotten into college scholarship wow and then had was going to social work to be a graduate school in social work and so you know, all of that kind of took place over the ensuing eight years or so. And then I moved to Nashville. And then a couple of years in, I get a letter that this time it's not from her parents, it's from her. And in it, she's inviting me to her wedding, but she's also really thanking me for what what I did and thanking the ER doc and thanking the soldiers and thanking the nurses and thanking everybody that was a part of what got her to be able to live this wonderful life where she was able to find someone and, and and plan on a marriage and having a family. And, you know, I just kind of had this wash of realization over me that um, that I was actually really grateful to, to Jensen. That's her name, Jensen. I was very grateful to Jensen, too, because that was in my first year of practice when you're kind of learning how hard to push and what to expect from people and how to think in the box and out of the box and just a remarkable impact that it had on me over the course of my career and all the ensuing kids that have been cared for in that time. So I think, you know, that, that to me is really one of the genesis of, of writing the whole book is because of, you know, if, if that's, you know, a meaningful, that's a meaningful story. And it's a, it's, it's a story of hope. It's a story of resilience. And there's a lot of grace in there too. And, you know, 20 years of, of doing this work, there's a whole lot of hope and a whole lot of resilience and a whole lot of grace. And I think our, you know, I think our society is in a place, not just, you know, as the pandemic kind of rolled out and, and receded, if, you know, to an endemic, um, but, um, but also just, just in general, how divided we are. I think if, if we can see that, you know, if we can just see these stories of grace and resilience, if we can understand that we're more alike than we are different, you know, I think that'll go a long way into making us heal. And, you know, people have been telling stories for as, as long as there's been campfires, as long as there's been a fire to sit around, people have been telling stories about their day to one another and to build that sense of community. So I, I think like, to me that that story kind of summarizes what a lot of the book is about. Wow. Dr. J, I can't, I mean, first of all, the fact that you started out wanting to be a writer or like education or how, I mean, you've done it all because now you've written this book. The book is one of hope and inspiration. And it, uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm very impressed. I, my heart was swelling during that story. I felt tears in my eyes. I mean, it was crazy. Like, I, I feel like I just watched a movie. Um, you described it brilliantly. I'm sure your book is brilliant and uh, I do plan on reading it. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be on it. This has been um, a really enjoyable time for me to be able to have this conversation. So thank you. Awesome. And, and likewise, and uh, all the best of luck in the future. And as someone with young children, thank you so much for doing what you do because someone has to do it and it is not uh, easy or pretty. So thank you. I really appreciate it. The name of the book again is All That Moves Us, Life Lessons from a Pediatric Neurosurgeon. And I can't thank you enough. To everyone listening at home, the best way to support the podcast is just to go over to MikeyOp.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that uh, announces the podcast as well as some philosophy, wit, and wisdom for you. And a huge thanks to our audience. Uh, we love you. We love your support. And the podcast keeps growing and the numbers keep going up. And that's just a really cool 
compliment to uh, my wife and I who love what we do and love helping people to think and move the conversation in exactly the direction that Dr. J. Wellens just moved it in, which is be inspired, have some hope, feel good about your life, feel good about your day, and don't worry about all these other things. Don't worry about politics and what's going on. Worry less and be active and present more. And to everyone listening, my name is Mike Oppenheim. This has been another episode of Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon.